You're listening to the Royal Flying Doctor Service podcast for the Queensland section. This episode is brought to you by the Small Talk Big Difference campaign. Mental health is largely invisible. Conditions such as depression and anxiety can sometimes be difficult to see, so it can make providing support to friends or family tricky. Even if the mental health struggles are obvious, knowing how to have a conversation and finding the right time doesn't come naturally to everyone. If you aren't sure what to say to someone who's showing signs of mental health stress, then this episode of the Small Talk Big Difference podcast is for you. Dr Tim Driscoll is the clinical lead for Outback Mental Health at the Royal Flying Doctor Service Queensland section. Tim, thanks for joining us. Why is it important to support someone who you think is struggling with mental health issues? Well, I guess the the key reason is that um, we are actually the first line of support for people around us, whether they're colleagues, friends or family or neighbours. Um, and essentially, it's really important that we do provide that support because we are the main source of support uh, for people who may be struggling. How do we know when is the right time to start a conversation with someone we're worried about? When is the right time to intervene? Well, I guess the, the first step there is, is really to notice. Um, so we might be noticing some kind of a change um, in someone that's quite close to us or they might be um, someone that we don't know so well, but we, we notice something that, that has us concerned. That often um, people do that quite naturally, um, but really what we're looking for is, is really to notice something in terms of a change. Um, and th- that can be lots of different things. So someone might all of a sudden... Um, you know, be much um, more sensitive, for example. Or, or they might do things like, um, you know, changes in sleep might happen. They might be sleeping less. If they're in your family, you might notice that someone may be uh, having trouble falling asleep. Um, that, things like appetite change is also a, a, a sign that someone might be having some, some struggles. Uh, and also there's really strong emotions that you might see. Um, so often people are fairly good at sort of picking up instinctively um, when someone might not be going so well, uh, we do this quite naturally uh, with people that we're around all the time. We'll notice when things are a bit off for them. Um, so it's often not the, the situation that we might miss it entirely. Uh, that does happen, certainly. Uh, there's certain times when um, we might not notice that someone is struggling. Um, but if, if we're paying attention to the people around us, often we will quite naturally pick up on those signs that someone might be having a harder time than normal. When is the right time to step in? Do, do you do it earlier or do you sort of wait to see if they can sort it out themselves? Look, I, I think earlier is better um, because, I mean, early intervention, the, you know, the, the simple way of thinking about this is that, you know, the deeper someone gets into a hole, the harder it is to get them out. So the sooner we get in and provide support, the better uh, in most situations. Um the, the sort of caveat to that is that you know, we do want to be somewhat sensitive in terms of when to have that conversation. We want to do it as soon as possible, uh, but we also want to make sure that the setting's right. Uh, we want to make sure that we ourselves are prepared to have that conversation. We're in the right headspace to provide support. Uh, so taking a bit of time is also important. So what I say is obviously as soon as possible, but give yourself some time and make sure you've got the right space uh, to have that conversation if possible. So we want to make sure it's a private setting, somewhere where both people feel comfortable. Um, we are oft- often want to make sure also that you're actually in mobile phone range is actually quite important if you're in a rural area, is that 
it's great to have a mobile phone on you which actually has connection um, because if you're really concerned about someone, you've got that next layer of support. So while it's important to you know get in as soon as you can to provide support, you want to make sure you're prepared to, to provide a, you know, a better experience for the person because the experience they have uh, actually often determines how likely they are to go and get further support as well. So they've had a good experience in that initial interaction with someone talking about mental health. They're actually then much more likely to then go and get that further support. So it's really quite important. I've often heard having difficult conversations, it's, it's easier to have them when you're walking next to somebody or doing something. How would you suggest doing an activity? Is, is that a good way to approach it or is a sit down taking the time out a better approach? I think that's sort of an individual uh, factor. I mean, there's there's many people that find it easier uh, to talk when they're walking, um, particularly if it's something they might find confrontational. So you've got the side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder sort of approach happening there. Um, and if you do feel that it's, some, it's going to be something that might be uncomfortable for a person, taking it outside for a walk is actually a really good way of doing that. Um, but again, you have to gauge the, the person as well. So in terms of where do you think they're going to feel most comfortable to have this conversation? Uh, so really... You know, a walk can be a good plan, but maybe not for everyone. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, but what you're thinking about is where is this person going to feel most comfortable to have this conversation? The language we use is so important. Can you give us some sort of suggestions on how we can approach these conversations? What sort of words we should use um, in, in dealing with somebody who might be struggling with mental health? Yeah, my, my advice is probably um, slightly different than you, you might assume it is. Um, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on the words that we use. Really focus on intent. Um, what can happen if we put too much emphasis on using the right words is that we end up in a situation where we're almost putting on an act. So we, we're putting emphasis and attention onto saying the right words rather than actually really focusing on listening and understanding where the person's coming from. Um, obviously there are things that you want to avoid, uh, particularly if it's a person that you know, you're not so familiar with, so you're not sure what sort of language that they're um, you know, used to having. So um, you know, obviously using respectful communication is really, really important. Um, but again, what, what I'd say is really focus on the intent, and your intent here is really initially to listen to understand, so really understand where that person's coming from, and also to make sure that they also have that sense that they've been understood, so reflecting that back to them as well. So the key thing I, I really encourage people to do is focus on the intent rather than the sort of uh, smaller mechanisms of that conversation. So if you're focusing on really listening to understand um, and then sort of demonstrating that you are listening and understanding to that person, a lot of that other stuff is going to fall into place automatically and it's going to be a much more natural conversation. So if you take this from a sort of be- beginning mental health clinicians, what you might see is they'll, they might say things that are quite cliched um, so, you know, how does that make you feel, for example, is a common one. And what you might see if you do do those sort of a more cliched sort of scripted comments is the person's going to have a negative reaction to that because it's not going to be a genuine conversation. Most people will want to give advice. Do you suggest that you hold back on that and just listen? Yeah, absolutely. Initially, the first thing that you want to do is you want to make the person feel listened to and understood. Um, advice can be really useful, um, but the key thing is no one takes on any advice until they've actually felt listened to and understood. Um, people often make that mistake of sort of jumping to the advice stage, um, and what happens there is even if that advice is absolutely perfect, really good advice, the person often isn't receptive 
until they've really felt listened to and understood. Uh, so I guess it's about order. Um, so advice can be really, really valuable. The other thing is that advice is not always what's required. Um, so sometimes people just need to talk. Uh, and there's a funny thing that happens when people talk. When they talk, they think. Um, and they think more clearly about things. And you've probably seen this in terms of a friend comes to you and they're really stressed about a situation. Um, and then they come and they sort of, it's almost like venting, but they're talking about it. Uh, you're not really saying too much, certainly not giving any advice. And then they come to a solution. So what they're doing is they're working their way through a problem and figuring it out through speech. And basically the interesting thing that happens for some reason, we can think better when we're talking about an issue. So they're coming to a resolution themselves. So sometimes you actually don't need to provide advice. What you're doing is you're providing that person as a sounding board so that person can actually work their way through the problem they're experiencing. Um, so sometimes there's actually no need for advice. At other times, advice is exactly what's called for. You might know something that's really, really valuable to that person's recovery. Um, but really, again, it's about being flexible in your approach. Would you say listening is the, the most important skill to bring to a conversation? Without really quality listening, um, it's very unlikely that you're going to have a positive impact. Um, it's sort of the... I guess it's the basis before you can get any other benefit is that you have to have been able to listen to and understand that person. Uh, and if you're not in that situation where you, you, know, you don't feel that you can sort of listen to or maybe relate to that person, maybe what we need to do is think about who might be a better person to provide support. Um, and that's always key is that we're not the right person for everyone. No one is. Um, so if you're thinking about having this conversation, um, one of the first things we can actually think about is, are we the best person? Should we enlist the help of someone else? Is there someone with a stronger relationship, um, you know, someone who has the confidence of that person, who's more relatable to that person? Um, even before we get into the conversation, that's a, a useful sort of thought process to go into. Are we the best person? If we can think of someone else, absolutely enlist their help. So we've had the conversation uh, and everyone's gone away, uh, what's the next step? Should we follow up? And like you said, should we call in other support networks to help follow up? Sure. I mean, it's certainly case by case. Um, so sometimes people, um, you know, they have the talk and that's all they need. Um, and you'll, you'll see that, you know, they've got some sort of stress that they're experiencing um, and that support that you've been able to provide is enough. Um, the other thing that I'd say is really, really valuable is that you know, having that door always being open. So making sure that the person knows they can come to you in the future. Maybe they're not ready right then to have that conversation. Um, but maybe, you know, in the, the weeks ahead, they might feel more comfortable to have that conversation. So the idea is that we have that initial conversation um, and also make sure that the person is aware that, you know, we're available in the future to, to provide, you know, support as required. And maybe now is not the ideal time, but maybe next week they might be feeling more confident to have that conversation. So having that um, ability to follow up is really, really important. Uh, I mean, it does depend on the conversation. Sometimes, you know, we're going to need to enlist the support of professional services. So if someone's at risk, for example, uh, we might need to take control of that conversation and, and you know, bring in professional support. Um, so it's really a matter of, I guess, keeping crisis in mind. If, if crisis is there, uh, then obviously we, we, we're going to get professional support. Um, if we're not in that situation, um, obviously, you know, that there's not a potential need for that additional level of support. Most people do get through most things without professional assistance. So if we think about most of the stresses and pressures that we face in our everyday lives, we get support from family, friends and colleagues, and that's what gets us through. But sometimes that, that's not enough. Sometimes that doesn't work. So that's when we go to that next level of professional help. 
How do we know when somebody is really distressed or possibly suicidal? What is that line? Well, look, the the line is um, you know very difficult to see sometimes, and I, I think that's a really important thing to think about in terms of you know we we do hear um, you know the the idea that every suicide is preventable, um, and that that is practically you know it it is true because it's you know it's a cause of preventable death. But in terms of um, being able to see those signs, if we reflect back on ourselves or anyone else, um, and then that we we, um, we, we heard that, um, you know, they, they had attempted suicide. We could actually look back on, you know, things that they might have said, things they, they might have done, that we, we can go, well, I should have picked up on that sign. But the, the truth of the matter is that people actually might have displayed those signs anyway. So with twenty twenty hindsight, we can absolutely see those signs that might have been in a whole, you know, a whole range of people. Um, so the, the key thing is there, and I think it's really important to think about that because there's a lot of guilt that goes with people who are left behind by suicide. Um, and I think it's really important that 2020 hindsight is kept in mind and that we could think about so many people and go, well, you know, they were a bit off last Tuesday. Why didn't I go and have that conversation? But you could say that to you know, just about anyone in a community. So, you know, we're not always going to pick up on all those signs because those signs are there whether someone may be suicidal or not. Um, we all have bad days. Um, the other thing to, to really emphasise is that if there are any signs that you've picked up on, ask the question really directly um, because really our best gauge of, of finding out whether someone might be suicidal is not things we notice necessarily but actually what they tell us. You know, if we ask them directly, have you had thoughts of ending your life, of, of killing yourself or uh, ending your life by suicide, asking that question very, very directly to the person, um, that's our best way of actually finding out whether that person is experiencing those suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, that's a, a really big issue. And one of the um, largest misconceptions out there is that what if I ask the question and it puts the idea into their head? Um, well, one of the things that I can really reassure you about is that that is absolutely not the case. You're not going to put suicidal thoughts into someone's head by asking the question. It just doesn't happen. Um, and, and people might say, yeah, maybe, maybe, but I've still got that concern. And I think, a, you know, there's a sort of simple way of maybe allaying that concern for you. And, and that is so if, if you were asked me, um, you know, Tim, have you had thoughts of suicide? Maybe you'd notice I'd look quite depressed, for example. And, you know, can you really imagine me going, oh, I hadn't thought of that? Um, and, 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 that's, and that's a way of looking at it. So you're not going to put thoughts into someone's head by asking the question, you know, are you having thoughts of suicide? Have you had thoughts of suicide? Have you, you know, had thoughts of ending your life? It needs to be a very direct question. It needs to be completely unambiguous in terms of that person really needs to be clear what you're asking about. We don't want to skirt around that question. Uh, people will say things like, you're not thinking about doing anything silly, are you? Um, and maybe that's better than nothing. Um, but there's a few other sort of things that are being said or communicated in that message, which is maybe I don't actually want the answer to this question. Um, and also, you know, it's just not a direct question. So you're not going to increase someone's risk, but it does give us the opportunity of actually finding out that someone is in a really, really bad place and then we can take steps from there. How much power does a friend or family member have to call in support? Does it have to be done from the person who's being distressed, who's feeling distressed, or can I call in support for my friend? You can absolutely call in support for your friend. I mean, you, you can, if you're looking at a, a real crisis where you're really concerned about a person, you can absolutely call triple zero. You can absolutely do that yourself. Um, 
you can call and get a welfare check for someone if you don't feel it yet. You, you can have that conversation for, for a number of different reasons, um, but you absolutely have the ability to, to call in, in support for someone else. They don't have to you know, give you permission to do that. It's great if we can actually have the person on board because it really does assist with their willingness to accept that support in the future. Um, but there's many circumstances in which we absolutely will have to call in help even if that person doesn't want it because they're, they're in crisis and they do need professional help. We've mentioned the emergency scenarios. What about if you want to call in help for your friend in a non-emergency situation? How do we go about that? Sure. I mean, I think it's probably worth um, thinking about those grey areas. Um, and if you're in that situation where, you know, you're really concerned about someone, but you're not at the stage where, you know, think, I need an ambulance right now, you're not there, but you've, you've got a real concern about the person. Um, one of those numbers that you can call is mental health call, which is 1300 642 255. Um, and that number really um, links you in with the closest uh, mental health team. So um, that'll take you to the hospital and health services, local mental health clinicians. Um, and and if, if that's not open, it takes you to the closest one. So some towns will have a, a day service, some towns will have a, a night service, or some towns will actually just have a visiting service. But that will take you to your closest mental health clinician Um that's how it geolocates essentially. So what that does is it means that you can talk to a mental health professional and get guidance over the phone. Um, you can you know you can get that support with the person in terms of you can put the phone on loudspeaker for example and you you can make it about you. You go well I'm not quite sure what to do about this. Uh, look I'd really like to get some you know professional advice on on how to proceed and um, you know I'm really worried about some of the things that you know you've described going through. Um, you can absolutely get that advice. And even outside of that, if the person's sort of going, no, I don't want any help, uh, you can still call that number uh, yourself and get guidance. So you're certainly not on your own. Is there any one type of support that has a better outcome than others? GP, going to your GP versus going, you know, friends and family stepping in from your experience? Well, I think the, you know, the main you know, the main thing that I always suggest for people is, unless they're in crisis, is to go through their GP. Um, so with mental health generally, I think the GP is the best place to start. Um, because the, the other thing is if you've got someone who might be feeling really low, they might be feeling low because they're depressed, but they also might be feeling low for a, for a medical reason, a, a physical health problem that, that can cause some other symptoms. So physical and mental health, they're not distinct and separated areas. They're very much interlinked. Um, so I always recommend the GP as the first point of call. Um, and the great thing about that is that they're also going to be aware of um, what services are available locally. So you've got someone who knows what's there and they also might be able to gauge who might be the best fit f for you. So you, you've got someone on your side as soon as you go in to see the GP. Uh, sometimes medication might be required and a GP will often be the person who prescribes that, that medication. Um, but really the, the key thing is having the GP is the sort of central point um, of contact and what that means is that we can look at the physical health, uh, we can look at you know, uh, good referrals to um, mental health clinicians that the GP has confidence in. Um, so you've got that person on your side automatically. So unless it's a crisis, I'd always suggest starting at the GP. Uh, sometimes people are, are really unwilling to, to take that step. Uh, so there is still stigma around mental health and that does... Uh, sometimes, you know, reduce the, the likelihood that someone might actually take that step to go to the GP, which is the sort of ideal scenario. And, and we can start them in other places. So 
Um, you know, sometimes people, you know, they don't want anyone to know that they've gone and uh, sought support with a mental health concern, um, but they might be really struggling. And that, that's where things like Lifeline really can assist. So, so that Lifeline number, which is 13 11 14, um, and that's a completely confidential service. So people can call that service uh, and there's, there's, not a, there's not a client file created for that person. So no one knows that you've called Lifeline. Uh, of course, the you know the struggle with that is obviously we we can't follow up through Lifeline in terms of because we don't keep a record, we can't have that person then you know call you back next week to see how things are going because it's you know you you don't have that record. Uh, but it's certainly a, a great option if if someone's really unwilling to take that first step but does want to talk to someone really off the record. That is a is a great option. Um, the other thing that's really important to know is that um, you know people who. Um, have had a, um, a story told to them by someone very, very close about the value of, of maybe seeing a psychologist, for example, that they've had themselves or another family member has had, uh, they're actually much more likely to then access service if they've had that recommendation uh, from a, a friend or a family member. Um, so that, that's also key as well. So even um, that person taking that first step is often determined by the, the advice or the encouragement of family and friends and colleagues. Tim, do you think we're getting better at having conversations about our mental health? Yeah, I do think we're getting better. I think the uh, level of um, sort of community knowledge has been, you know, growing, you know, quite rapidly. Um, certainly, uh, the, mo- look, the most encouraging thing I've seen in, in recent years is um, men being more open to talk about depression, for example. I think that's been a, a great move. Uh, I think women have generally been very... Um, you know, far ahead of men in terms of being able to talk about their their feelings with, with friends, uh, being able to, you know, talk about the struggles they might be having. Uh, but also, also, I mean, they do this with physical health as well, is that, you know, men often don't go to the doctor about you know, any physical health concern and they're probably worse with mental health concerns. So women are much better at identifying things and then going and getting help with those. So that help-seeking behaviour, women are much better at it. Um, but the encouraging thing that I've seen is that, you know, men are much more open to talking about depression now and that, that's been over the last sort of two to three years even where we've seen that real growth in people's openness to talk about mental health in general. Um, so that, that's been a, a really um, encouraging sign to see. I think we've got a long way to go and I think there's still stigma um, that exists and, and people are certainly concerned about um, their reputation perhaps if they, you know, there, there still is that silly idea that you know, if you experience a depressive episode, you're weak, for example. So that there are still those ideas that persist, um, but I think we are getting better with time. And for more information on what we've been discussing, it's part of the Small Talk Big Difference campaign, proudly funded by the Commonwealth and the Queensland governments through the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangement. For more details on this podcast, go to smalltalkbigdifference.com.au and don't forget to leave a review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more.